What's up, fam? How y'all doing? You good? I'll tell you, it's so good to be here, and I, I want to just give you a couple of precursors before we jump into the text together. First, I just want to warn you, I can tell most of you are a quiet bunch. I get, I get a little bit lit, okay? Just so you know, uh, as we say in, in our neighborhood, I get a little crunk, maybe, maybe over the top, but I'm just going to warn you, you have to love me, and here's the reason why. We're family. We're church family, but you only have to deal with me. So Josh brings me in just to let you know how good you have it with him, okay? Uh, I do yell a lot, and I'm not going to stop because y'all are a quiet bunch. You just got to get a, you know, just let it happen. Also, it's so good to see Anthony and Ashley, who we got to send to be a part of this uh, community. Dear family, we love you so much. And so thankful to see what God is doing in North Mountain. Welcome to the Redemption Church family. And honestly, we we just think of you often, pray for you. Um, You are a gift to this community and believe that God has sent you here to bring the heaven to earth in in such a way that God, God could only do through his people. And uh, I, I pray that you all take this seriously. Josh, you are, you are uh, such a gift and, and a huge uh, part of what God's doing in redemption. And I hope you know that we love you and support you and uh, pray for you. And I hope that you guys treat them well, all right? If you don't, uh, you know, you'll ha- I'll come in with a different role. I'll start yelling at people in a, in a, in a not good way. No, take care of your pastors. They're such a gift, and, and, and they need to be supported and prayed for. There's so much to care and so much to do to get this community launched. P- please keep them in prayer. Last week, we ended what would be called kind of our call, our last call, if you will. Jesus does a last call, and that's the end of his public ministry. So the reason why we need to know that is because everything from here on out is going to be private interactions between Jesus and his disciples. And this is why I love the book of John. I have so enjoyed studying the book of John, and I hope you have. But I want to put it this way. I think John gives us a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the life of Jesus that's meant to invite the reader closer in a relationship. Now, I think God is inviting you and I into a closer relationship with him. And John makes this clear. John is the one who even introduces himself as the disciple that Jesus loves. And he's not doing this to brag. He's actually doing this to invite you. You're not designed to be far from Jesus. You are not created to be distant from him. You are made to be close. And if you don't get that, what you'll begin to operate in is a false paradigm. And only those who receive a revelation of the love of God can actually break free from this paradigm. Because I would suggest that many of you operate as if sometimes you are close and sometimes you are far. Sometimes you're close to God and other times you are far to God, far from God. But 
What we see in the work of Christ is actually how the gospel works. We cannot in our works and in our efforts make ourselves closer or make ourselves farther. We are already in our flesh as far from God as we can be. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come close to you. And when we come to know him, we get brought into him. Now, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, can we at least agree there's no way to get closer than that? You're in him and he is in you. You are created for, designed for, and redeemed for a close relationship. And that's what these scriptures do. They invite us in. Now, I want you to notice something. Uh, I think the slides, this is, this is the second slide. Notice how the storytelling moves into slow motion. As she's reading this, you need to understand that John is such a good storyteller that he moves the story now into kind of a slow motion. What I mean by that is, if you're watching a movie, everything slows down in the movie and it's trying to get you to look at things or be drawn to details that you would not see normally. As you're reading this story, let's just notice a couple of these slow motion pan details that John takes us through. First, he starts letting you in on what Jesus is thinking. There's no more behind the scenes than hearing Jesus' thoughts. Notice this. He knew something. What does he know? He knows that his hour has come. Remember, Jesus is all about doing God's work or the Father's work, but not just the Father's work. He's all about doing the Father's work on the Father's timing. There's many times Jesus was invited to do things and he says, my hour has not come yet. I will do it. It's just not the right timing. But now he knows. So here's what he knows. He knows the Father's heart he knows the father's word he knows what the father has sent him to do and he knows now the time has come so he knows the timing but also notice this he knows that judas is going to betray him so he sees sitting at this table all the things going on in his mind is he knows that it's his time has come for him to do this work that he's been sent to do. And he knows that those sitting at the table are not all for him. There's another thing he knows. Notice this. You see this in, he knew who he was and how much authority he had. So it says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, and all things were in his hand, and he knew what he had come from God to do and what he was going back for. So notice this. He knows all things has been given to him. He knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows what he has come to do, and he knows what he is going to do, and he knows where he's going after that. 
But right in the middle of all that is happening in his heart and in his mind, he knows all these things. He knows who's betraying him. He knows his authority, his identity. He knows his purpose. He knows all of these things. He knows who's going to betray him. There's a line in there that not only shows the mind of Christ, but shows the heart of Christ. It says he loved his own, and he's going to love them till the end. This line is just profound. If, if we don't stop at a line like this, we're, we're trying to speed up the slow motion. It's meant to slow us down so that we are drawn to this reality. Look at all that God is, look at all that Jesus is experiencing in this moment. He's, he's knowing all these things and he also is feeling or he's, or he's deeply knowing that he loves them and has loved them. Before we just run past this, and before we just kind of try to finish the text, can we just pause for a minute and just see God's heart for his people? Can we, before we look at him just washing their feet and kind of looking at God's activity, can we just not assume his heart? Can we revel in it for a moment? So often we just look at the actions of Christ and assume his love. But let's not assume it. Let's meditate on it. Jesus deeply loves them. And he's so committed to them that he is so in love with them that he's going to finish all the work that he has come to do. That he was not just doing it as a checklist from his father tasks that he had to do he loves them i, I want to just declare this over us before we kind of move through the text jesus loves everyone at this table everyone at this table even the ones that would doubt him deny him betray him question him he loves them. He loves them, and this kind of love is so much deeper than we can even categorize. We have no categories for this kind of love. How can we explain a love that understands and knows everything and, and, and can see what's taking place, and he has such a deep love for them and such a commitment to them that all you can do it's just enjoy it. You can't understand it. I think some of your and some of my struggle with receiving God's love is we try to understand it. I know we're like the thinkers. We're analytical. We're the West. We just love to dissect everything. I know. I know we just want to get it. I know we just want to have rational thought. The worst thing that any of you all could be called is gullible. <laughs> and so what, what do you do? We look at scripture. We love to sit around and dissect it and, 
understand original meaning. And I'm not, I'm not making fun of any of these things. We love to sit around and kind of show each other how much we know about the word. But let me just get at your heart. I think many of you hide behind your knowledge empty and void of knowing his love. I think the more knowledge you get, the deeper your love and understanding of how much his love for you. It's like when you get something in scripture, it's not like, oh, I can't wait to preach this thing. It is bringing tears to your eyes because you have received such a deep revelation of something you can't even understand. And dare I say, you can't even explain it to somebody? His love for you is beyond measure. Let's, let's zoom out from the table, and I just want to declare this over you. You're loved more than you know. And I'm saying this to the deniers, to the betrayers, and to all of those who would think there's no way they can know it. You are loved. Jesus did not just come into the world and say, I'm going to do this work and I'm going to redeem them and just let's put a bag over their head. I don't like them, but I love, I, I just love them. Like we have made this false dichotomy. He loves you. He adores you. He cares for you. He's committed to you. He loves you. That is why what he does next causes such a ruckus. Because I want us to see that when we understand true love, the activity that comes from true love is far beyond what we could even understand. If love can't be understood, the activity that flows from that kind of love gets misunderstood. What does Jesus do? He gets up with all of this in his mind. He gets up and takes off all of his outer garments and he puts on the garments of a servant and he washes the feet of his disciples. Now I could do all kinds of stuff to try to explain to you how no rabbi, no master, no leader would ever do something like this. I could talk to you about how gross it was, what their feet looked like. We could try to get into kind of the imagery of all of that. But I, I, I believe that many of you could kind of put yourself there for a moment and just realize this is not something a leader does or did. And I said does on purpose. This is also not something we see leaders doing. Why would he do this? What I want to focus on from verses 4 to 7 is that Jesus acted from his identity and not for it. If we could put that up. Jesus acted from his identity and not 
for it. Here's, here's what I mean by this. Many of us are so used to earning something that we're constantly working for identity, for love. And so we're like from the garden, grasping for something that's already ours. Has it ever just mind boggled us that we think of Adam and Eve in the garden in a perfect environment. They have a perfect relationship. They're close and walking in the garden with Jesus. They're created in the image and what? Likeness of God. And what they bite into is God doesn't want you to be like him. They're created in the likeness, but he doesn't want you to be like him. So they end up grasping for something that they already fully have. They end up trying to earn something that has already been given to them. I think many of us know that. We're constantly trying to earn people's love. We're constantly trying to find our identity. We're constantly trying to work for something. And even in legalistic churches and in religious communities, we're constantly setting up rules trying to make people earn things that is already theirs in Christ. And the reality of this danger is we see Jesus working from his identity. How do I know he's working from it? Because he just showed you what's in his mind. He already knows who he is. He already knows how much he's loved. He already knows that he has all authority and power. He already knows all of that is in his mind. And from that, he serves. You never work for God trying to earn something. You work from God in all that you have already been given. You never work for love. You work from love. You never work for identity. You, learn, you work from identity. You never work for righteousness. You work from your righteousness. And when you see that one little word, you see something switch. These two words, for to from, you see how Jesus operates. Now, I'll tell you a little story, and I'll try to move quick. As a younger man, I thought being a preacher was going to get me all kinds of things that it never ended up getting me, meaning like popularity, fame, jets, all kinds of things, you know what I mean? That shows you what era I grew up in and what circles I grew up in. So I became a pastor with this in mind. I'm going to become something great. Except I got married, started working in a little church plant. With this mindset, couldn't pay my bills. So I started taking on side hustles. And one particular, I got called and said, hey, you and your wife, you want to come work at a, a wine tasting 
club. I don't know if you've ever, I lived in California. I don't know if you've ever been to these places, but they go to wineries. They wear like sashes and hats and fancy clothes, and they're just drinking wine like crazy. And I went there and was going to get a hundred bucks, me and my wife, 200 bucks. So I went there and they started picking jobs and they go, this lady, my wife, I think you know, she looks cute. She's fun. Let's th- she's the wine pourer. And I'm going, I want to pour wine too. You know, she's over there just ha, 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 laughing and dumping wine into people's glasses. And then they go, we need somebody to take this little basket and carry it around and let people throw trash into it. Okay. I'm like, Lord, please. Let me pour wine. They handed me the basket. You look like a guy who could do that. (laughs) So I'm walking around this party filled with rich, dare I say, snobby people. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just judging. (laughs) Carrying a basket. Now, at this time, I was about 320 pounds, so I was pretty big, you know, sweating like crazy, and and, and I'm carrying a basket like this size, (laughs) and all these people are throwing their trash. Now, that doesn't sound that bad to you. They were getting also a little toasty, a little toasted, a little, a little, little turn, you know, they were getting, they were getting, so they were becoming bold. So they would say, did you have to go to school for this? Mocking, laughing, my wife's over there pouring and I'm like, (laughs) and I, I took a break and I went into the bathroom and I, I started just Yelling at God, God, I don't need this job. I don't need a hundred bucks. It's not worth a hundred bucks to walk around and take everybody's trash. I'm a, I'm a pastor. If they knew who I was and, and what I'm called to do, I'm a pastor. And I could clearly hear the Lord speak to me. This is what you're called to do. Serve. God took me to school. Because the reality is, we think of love in a way that God doesn't even demonstrate it or teach us. We did not learn the kind of love we operate in from Christ. And that began a journey in my life that actually led me away from seeing ministry and life and service and love. If in that moment, think of it, if in that moment I knew my identity and what God had called me to do, I would not need these drunk people's validation to try to tell me that I'm something special. But because I was so into impressing them, I was working for affirmation rather from affirmation. How is it that God could humble himself in such a way, and this isn't even the apex of his humility, how is it that God could humble himself in the person of Jesus and wash their feet because he knew who he was? He wasn't working for affirmation. He was working from affirmation. It says it. When the people of God are called to work from their love and work from their identity, 
This kind of love only operates in humility. That's why when you hear Jesus saying, you want to be the greatest in God's kingdom? Learn to be a servant. I know we heard this before, but Jesus doesn't just say it. He shows us right now, I am operating in greatness by washing feet. Maybe our definition of greatness isn't his. But not only does Jesus humble himself, look at what it does for everybody else. True love also not only shows us humility, but it humbles us. Do you see this with Peter? Peter gets to Jesus washing his feet, and you see him go, no, Jesus, you are not going to wash my feet. And he goes, if you don't wash my feet, you can't have any part of me. And he goes, wash my whole body. We have a tendency in us to swing from all or nothing. We have a tendency to either be fully rebellious or fully legalistic. We don't know what it is to be loved. We just don't. But let me try to explain it this way, and if we can put this up on the screen. True love should not be rejected or demanded. It's only received. If you reject love, so Jesus comes and says, I'm going to wash your feet. And he goes, no, that's rejection. Then he goes, well, if you can't, you can't have all of me. Then he goes, wash everything. He's now demanding more than Jesus is giving. If you see love as something you reject or demand, you're actually operating in not what love calls us into. If you demand someone to love you, like, it's your right. you got to love me, right? Like I did up front. <laughs> That's actually not love at all. Yes, there is a call on the church to show love. But when we come into a place and demand it from people who are called to love, you need to love me and set the terms of how they need to love you. You're actually not operating in the spirit of love. Or if you reject the love, meaning, no, you're, you're greater than me. There's no way. And it humbles you and you reject it. What does love call us into? It actually calls us in not to understand it, not to demand it, not to reject it. It calls us into receiving and putting us in a place where we go, okay, Lord, whatever it is, I receive it. When I read this part of the story, I, I remember actually a story in my life where this became very clear. Is I was uh, went to preach at a church in California, 
And I was their guest preacher, so I had to be something respectable, you know. And uh, I thought, you know, I got to show, you know, I'm getting paid to be out there. and I want to impress. And so I'm out there when the Passion of the Christ came out. Now, I'm not saying, hey, everybody go watch Passion of Christ. This is just a story, right? Okay, so I went there, and they're going, we should go to it. The, the theaters were packed out. So I go with a group of pastors. I don't know them all that well. They're asking me to preach, and we all go, hey, there's a big kind of thing happening right now. People are lining up to go see this movie. We should go. So we get tickets and we go to the Passion of the Christ. And I'm sitting there trying to kind of, let's say, impress and act spiritual. And all of a sudden the movie comes on and I get in and I just lose it. Like lose it. I am crying in such a way that's not like chick flick got something in my eye type deal. This is like sobbing loud. Now, I know I'm screaming loud, so put that amplified. I'm just like, ah, you know, crying and I can't control it. And all these pastors are like, who is this guy, you know? And in that moment, I'm being so overwhelmed as I'm watching Jesus just get totally destroyed. And while I'm watching, I'm, 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 I'm crying and crying, and I get so overwhelmed at the whipping section that I scream. Stop! In the middle of a theater. Close my eyes, and I scream, stop. And in that moment, I sense the whisper of the Holy Spirit. If I was to stop, you would have no part of me. From there on out, I felt the rush of God's spirit calm my heart and tell me, don't close your eyes. Just watched everything. I felt like Peter. One minute I'm overwhelmed, the next minute I'm trying to stop it. I felt so overwhelmed by his love and so humbled by it, I didn't want it. The Spirit spoke, if, if you don't receive it, you'll have no part with me. In that moment, the Spirit of God allowed me to, to, to realize what I needed to do was not rejected or demanded. I just needed to receive a love that I could not even imagine. I, I, I know for a fact that I'm not worthy of it but I need it. And that's because when we experience or when we face the kind of love that Jesus gives to us, there's nothing we can do except receive it. We can't boast in how much we've done. We can't try to... Uh, Stop it or go, I'll, I'll fix it myself. I don't need you to do it. I'll fix it myself. We can do all kinds of ways. And we can't demand it. But when God's spirit works, it humbles us. That's the beauty of it. Christ's love that leads to humility calls us to humility. Do you see how Christ models love for us? But it doesn't just model it, 
it becomes our means. Let's, let's look at this. True love is not simply our model. It is our means. You, you see what happens when we experience love? What ends up happening is Jesus looks at them and says, now look at what I've done. He looks at them and says, this is what you're supposed to do. When you experience this kind of love and are washed by this kind of love, you give it away. You're transformed by it. Now, not only have I experienced love, it becomes a well that pours out of me. Now I can show love to people who betray. I can show love to people who deny. I can show love to people who reject. I can show love. Why? Because I'm not trying to earn it. I can now display it. I can show it. Because I have been given this deep well of being loved, when I face rejection, I don't go, no, love me from those who have rejected me, I go, I am loved. So I can display this kind of love in the face of rejection. Because true love transforms not only our lives, but the way we treat others. And this kind of service shows us not just a model, like, oh, well, Jesus did that kind of stuff, and that's just Jesus. His love is so transformative that it becomes the power in which we show other love. He shows you what greatness is so you can live in this greatness. And when I say greatness, I don't mean it as if you hear it on social media. I mean the way Jesus teaches the kind of greatness that strips itself of all earthly things and serves. The humble place is the exalted place in Scripture. See, a lot of us think of it this way. We go, well, if you humble ourselves, God's going to exalt us, right? So what that means is if we just, you know, just humble, humble, humble ourselves, God's going to lift us up and we're going to have like the end of a Disney movie where just, you know, everybody else just gets payback for all the ways they've treated you for years. And I get it. That's a fun ending. And sometimes we do see it that way. And sometimes we experience that and we see God put us in places of exaltation like Joseph. But even in his place of exaltation, he weeps when those who he should be rubbing it in their face. He weeps. Why? Because those who understand as scripture calls us, he's saying to them, he's saying to his people, he's saying to you, if you want to know greatness in the kingdom, it's in humility. It's in the humble place. Humility is not the kind of pathway 
to greatness. Humility is greatness. And it is in that place that you come closer and understanding more of Christ's love. You're fellowshipping with him in his sufferings. It's humble. That's why when we read a story like this, we're overwhelmed and challenged. Can we admit that? Overwhelmed by how much he loves us and challenged by how we're supposed to love others. They told me to do math at the beginning of the service, like to say, here's when you get up and you have this much time, and I didn't do it, so I think I'm close. (laughs) They shouldn't have asked me to do math and preach at the same time. Here's our fear of love, and then we'll, 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 we'll land the plane on this. Our fear of love is we've seen a love in the world that is blind. Matter of fact, we've probably heard love is blind or naive. And people who are used to kind of understanding everything and figuring things out, the worst thing that could happen to them is for them to be taken advantage of because then they'll obsess. What did I miss? (laughs) I got taken advantage of, and God's people never get taken advantage of, so I had to miss something. You see your math equation? It doesn't work. And so what we think is, if I love the way people tell me to love, I'm going to be naive. But I want us to see that Jesus points out who's going to betray him and that not everybody at the table is going to receive this love to show us something. He says it very clear, to show us he knows and still does what he did. Love is not blind and it is not naive. The truth is you are fully known And fully loved. That's a scary reality. There is nothing that God doesn't know. There's no motive, intent. There is nothing that God doesn't see. There is nothing in you that God doesn't know. You are not tricking him. You're not. You're not hiding anything from him. You're not. He doesn't love you because you put on a better facade than everybody else at the table. He fully knows and still fully loves to the end. Even with knowing there are going to be some at the table at his right and left hand who are going to betray him. And because you think you've earned a position or because you think you deserve a position you're also making Jesus out to be gullible and he's not there is nothing in you hidden from him there is nothing in you that goes this one they deserve it but him fully knowing 
and being fully wide open to all that is in the hearts of man does not stop him from giving us a love that we could never earn if we could. Even those who are going to reject him, he shows love to them. And I believe that today, as I prayed for this time with us, I could sense the Lord speaking something over me that I was supposed to declare over you. You're fully known and you're fully loved. He's not gullible, he's not naive. He knows everybody at the table. He knows who will reject him. He knows who will receive. He knows who will deny in the darkest hours. And what this does is one of two things. And you see this right after this. Judas's heart gets hardened and some hearts melt. Some go into questioning. But this kind of love melts and motivates the beloved. I want to speak to those who are the beloved. And I know that there are some in here who, who just don't know. Do I believe? Have I received this? This sounds so different than the world that I live in. And let me just acknowledge it is. It's a kingdom unlike all the kingdoms of this world. It's a philosophy unlike all philosophies in the world. And, and if you're trying to discover and trying to understand it, let me just tell you, my prayer is that you'll receive something that you haven't received, a revelation of Jesus. So if you don't believe, my prayer is that today you would believe. But for those of you who believe and have received this and are the beloved, let me talk to you for a moment. The reason we continue to come to the Lord's table as we do is redemption all the time. The reason we continue to come to the Lord's table is for a couple of reasons that I think we need to focus on today. Our hearts need to be melted. By how much he loves us. And the fact that we have a seat at the table should melt us. I want you to take a moment today as we worship. And if I'm going I'm to ask Chandler to come and just begin to play. And I'm going to pray. And then Josh is going to come and lead us in a moment into communion. But I, I want us to take a minute and just meditate on something you can't understand. So you're going, how do I understand an ocean? You don't. You just dive in. You just get in. You just experience it. You just meditate on it. You just jump into something that is far, you, you drowned in it. So I'm asking us to do something that maybe goes against kind of our analytical brains. I'm asking you to meditate on something you'll never get. It's so profound that all you can do is sink in it. And it's so hot and so 
so perfectly temperatured that it slowly melts away the hardness of our hearts without consuming us. And it makes us pure gold. So for some of us, we need to think about something we have a hard time thinking about. And I know some of us are going to respond like Peter. No, not me, Lord. Not me. I, I, I don't know. No, you can't do this to me. No, today, here's what I want you to do. If you can't come and be melted by the gospel, you can't have any part of it. I pray that today you hear him sing over you his love and his kindness. And you receive it. When I was praying today, and I I know this can be out of the ordinary, when I was praying today, I really believe there is someone in here who needs to hear this. You have been doubting not just church or Christianity or your past you have fully been doubting whether God actually exists and loves you and right now you can feel your heart racing and I want to declare over you you're loved he sees you he knows you And he's not coming to beat you up. He's coming to your feet. And he's declaring over you. A love you cannot find. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Just receive it. Yeah, but I'm going to look dumb in front of my friends. I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to look gullible. How can I believe in such a thing that doesn't even rationally add up to all of my friends around me? Receive it. And he is going to show you a love that they could never express to you. He's going to reveal it to you. And there's some in this room who need to know that this love doesn't just melt you. It motivates you. And you're asking questions like, how can I love somebody who has hurt me so desperately? How can I serve these people who keep rejecting me? How can I keep going to these ones who continually mock me and make fun of me? How can I keep going and serving people? doesn't work. And we're so practical that we think practicality overrides faith. We think if it doesn't work, we shouldn't do it. (laughs) But if you can drink deeply of this cup and if you can eat of his body, you will find a motivation to take off the garments of pride and put on the garments of humility. And wash people's feet. And believe that that same love is going to be seen and received by a people who don't deserve it like you.
what keeps us on our knees serving in the midst of hard times? The gospel. The good news that I don't have to earn somebody else's love to know I'm loved. I'm loved whether they reject me or receive me. I'm loved and I can continue to serve because I am loved. So today, I want us to just pause for a moment and let the Spirit speak. And Josh, if you could come and just lead us in communion together. But Father, I pray that you would let us sit and look down at our feet. I want you to look down at your feet right now. And I want you to picture Jesus, the creator of the world, God Almighty, with slave clothes on, washing your feet. And I want you to look as he looks up into your eyes and you see a love that you've never seen in your life. You can't even explain it, but you don't even know how to react to it. You don't even know what to do. Sit there and let him wash you, cleanse you, and speak over you. Receive it. Father, we thank you that we get to know you, know our identity because of you. We get to live from this place that you have brought us into. Thank you that we're not searching any longer. All we need and all we have is in you. You are our model and you are our means. By your spirit, we want to live this way. We want to serve. We want to love. We want to walk in humility. We want to be generous. We want to care. We want to proclaim Thank you for this remembrance today.